may have a seat. Thank you, Vaughn and team. It must be warm tonight. How's everybody doing way out there? I love this room, this hot room right now. I love it. I, as I said earlier, I've been coming to this place since I was a little boy, and year after year, um, coming to this place as a young man and adult, and now up to what I am now, and hearing message after message in this room, there's no room literally in the entire world that means more to me spiritually than this room. The way that God has moved in my heart here, the way that he has moved in us as a couple, um, and um, especially those years as a pastor coming in here and realizing that I was going to get fed instead of having to feed others, it just has meant so much to me, and I'm so grateful, and it just is always a huge honor uh, to, to be on this side of, of the, the podium, to be able to bring God's word because of what this place has meant to me. I want to introduce you to my, my family, and uh, we have a picture here of them. Most important, of course, is right here, my wife, Jane, who's also right there, two places at once, which is very tricky. Um, we've been married for 31 years. We met at Biola University in Chapel. So we tell Biola students, go to chapel, you meet more, might meet more than just Jesus there. Um, we have four children, and you say, well, there's five, but one's a son-in-law, oldest Megan here. She's actually married to the guy in the beard, Eric. They live in Colorado. Aubrey uh, lives in Colorado also. Both of them are out of college. All three of those are out of college. Then our far right daughter, Noelle, she is at Moody Bible Institute in Chicago. And Caleb is a sophomore at uh, Liberty University in Virginia. And so we are a family in four time zones, Virginia, Illinois, Colorado, California, and we miss them a lot, but uh, we're doing empty nest for the second try. Last year was our first try, and we only got three months into it, and our daughter had to come home for eight months because of health reasons, but she's doing great. So we're calling this empty nest 2.0, <laughs> and we're giving it a try once again. Well, as I mentioned, in the springtime, I was reading through the, the gospel of Luke, and it really hit me right between the eyes, this chapter 6, which is so powerful. And the theme for these nights together is counterintuitive, counterintuitive. Jesus' ways are counterintuitive to, to, to our ways, for sure. Intuitive is the natural instincts that you have. Counterintuitive is going against your natural instincts, doing that which is not natural to you. Uh, a number of years ago, when I was in my early 20s, I was in London, the only time I've been in London, and when I was there, when I came out of the, the hotel where we were in, there was a, there was a sign painted on the, the ground, and this isn't the same one, but you can see this picture here of London, and down here, right before you cross the street, it says, look right. The reason it says that is because there's a lot of people who go to London who aren't from England, and when they go to cross the street, they look left, because that's intuitive, because cars come from the left to the right, and they would see there were no cars coming, they would walk out and bam, came the car from the right, because they drive on the other side of the road. Notice I said the other side, not the wrong side, but they drive from the other side of the road, and so there are signs in the streets in, in London and other places in England that say, look right, because it's counterintuitive to do that. It goes against what's natural 
for us. Counterintuitive. Jesus has just called his disciples in this passage, so they're brand new and following him. They have been trained under completely different systems and thinking patterns from the religious leaders of that day. And now Jesus is going to gather them up and begin to teach them about how to do things different than they've ever been taught before, counterintuitive, against what they would think is natural to them. And they're going to need his help to do it, as do we, as do we. So take your Bibles, if you would, and turn them to Luke chapter 6, New Testament, third book of, of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, then Luke. The reason it's called Luke is because the author is a guy named Luke. He was a doctor. He wrote also the book of Acts, two books to the right. He's not one of the 12 disciples. In fact, he's not even a Jew. He's a Gentile, and yet he becomes a follower of Jesus, and he writes this very detailed account of Jesus' life. Luke chapter 6 includes this sermon from Jesus. Some would say it's a cliff note version of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, but a closer look, it probably isn't, uh, for a very, uh, various reasons for that. One, it's way shorter. Um, but secondly, there are some elements that are, that are different, including it says that Jesus gave this sermon on a level plane, which is not a mount. And even the first section, verses 20 through 26, which we're not going to look at, because there's four sections and we only have three nights, so I'm not going to do that. That's the Beatitude section. In Matthew chapter 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, there's nine Beatitudes, and here there's only four. Not only are there only four blessings, but also four woes, which is very different than the Sermon on the Mount, etc. So it's probably a different sermon, but very much has similar material in it. So Jesus calls his disciples, and then there's a big gathering to hear him speak, and we get to this sermon that he gives, and he just gets right into it. And it must have blown them away how different it was from what they knew and had heard all of their days. And we're going to start in verse 27. Tonight, we're going to go with verses 27 through 36. And this section starts off with something counterintuitive. But, I say to you, but, this is going to be different than what you know. Verse 27 of Luke 6 says this, Jesus' words. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. That's tough enough already, right? To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. For if you, and if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you'll be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. 
But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Let those three words sink in for a second. Love your enemies. An enemy is someone I can't stand to be around. An enemy is someone I'm afraid of. An enemy is someone that, uh, who has hurt me deeply. An enemy is somebody that I never want to see again. An enemy could be a boss who fired you, an employee who sued you, a spouse who divorced you, a bully who hurt you. An enemy could be a friend who slandered you or a business partner who defrauded you or a parent who deserted you or a relative who abused you or a neighbor who wronged you. And when Jesus says, love your enemies, how do we really process this? What is he really saying here? I've heard people say about a bad experience in their life, they say things like, I wouldn't wish this on my very worst enemy. And I think, really? Seriously? Don't you kind of? I mean, really, right? Don't you kind of wish that what you're going through, somebody else was going through it, somebody you didn't like was going through it instead of you going through it? We've all been hurt by people some of us more than others. And Jesus tells us to not just tolerate these people, not just to find a way not to be around them or to strategically avoid them, but to love them. To love them. Just a little parenthesis here. In this particular passage, Jesus does not say anything about forgiveness. There's plenty of that in the Bible, but just not in this passage. Just, Just so you know. So before we look at the the how, how Jesus tells us to love our enemies, let's first look at what he says about intuitive actions of love. He has that in here, and then we'll get to that which is counterintuitive. But these are the actions of love that come naturally to us. Look again at verse 32. Jesus says, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. Intuitive actions of love are, I love those who love me. I do good to those who do good to me. I lend money to those who will give money back to me. Uh, That isn't love. That's called swapping. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. You give me a birthday present, I'll give you a birthday present. You have us over for dinner, we'll have you over for dinner. That's swapping. It doesn't mean it's not positive, but Jesus says, what benefit or credit is that to you? Even the biggest of sinners can do that. That's natural for them. That's intuitive to them. Swapping is two-way. Jesus' way is one way. It's a proactive way, and it's counterintuitive because it's proactively doing good to those who have done us harm. So let's go back and figure this out. Back to verse 27. Again, the words of Jesus, but I say to you who hear, I'm assuming you're sitting here because you can, you can hear, or somehow you're being told how this is said. So those of us who can hear the word of God, he says, love your enemies, Do good to those who hate you. 
Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. I mean, let's pause here and let's ask the big question. Where do we draw the line with this? I mean, do we, out of love, turn our back on sin? Do we turn our back on evil? Do we just tolerate those who harm us? Do we, do we place ourselves in harm's way to be hurt by a person over and over again to show them love to an enemy who does us harm? When I was in junior high, us boys played this ridiculous game, as junior high boys would do. It was to see how tough you were. And so you would stand still, and a guy would come up and hit you as hard as he possibly can in the arm, in the shoulder, right here. As hard as he could. And then if you thought you were tough enough to take another hit, you would say, thank you, sir, may I have another? That's what we would do. And so he would get ready and he would haul off again and smack you in the shoulder as hard as he could in the exact same spot. And then if you were tough enough, you would say, thank you, sir, may I have another? And you would do it until you just couldn't stand it anymore. That's just what we did as junior high boys. It's, it's junior high boys, I guess. And is that what we're supposed to do here? Are we supposed to, in the spirit of loving our enemies, just allow our enemy to hit us over and over and over again and say, thank you, sir, may I have another? Is that what he's saying? Where is the line? And to be honest, I'm not entirely sure. I know that the Bible instructs us to be under governing authorities, and I know that that includes submitting to the laws of the land and law enforcement on that land, and that those law enforcement uh, capabilities are there to protect us. I know that the Apostle Paul used his Roman citizenship as protection, including when he was beaten, even appealing all the way up to Caesar. I know that the Apostle Paul left cities under the dark of night when he was persecuted. He just didn't just stay around for, to be in harm's way. I know the Bible teaches that God is the righteous, sovereign judge who will make all things right in his timing and in the end. I know that the Bible teaches, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But I don't know exactly where all the lines are. So, how are we to practically show love to people we can't stand? Jesus gives us four actions in his sermon on how to love people we can't stand. Action number one, do good to people who hate you. That's what it says in verse 27, do good to those who hate you. Do good to them. Let those words sink in. Do good to those who hate you. Here's a practical example from the Old Testament book of Exodus. Ready? Exodus 23, verses 4 and 5. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, then you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. So the enemy's there with it. You shall rescue it with him. All right? 
An ox, a donkey, would have been worth a lot to, to them in those days. It would have been very important to them. Ox goes off, donkey goes off, or collapses. Let, let, let's try to make it 2019. You're driving down the street, and your enemy's dog has gotten out, and they love this dog. I mean, you know, this the dog that goes everywhere? The dog's at the grocery store. The dog's at the airport. The dog's everywhere. They love this dog. It's got little outfits. It's got bows in its hair. It's, it's one of those dogs. If I've just offended 50 of you, I'm sorry. And <laughs> we have a dog, but it doesn't have any bows. And, and you see the dog, and you know it's blocks away from your enemy's house. You have an opportunity at that moment to swoop up that dog and put it in your car and drive it far away and leave it off at the other side of town and never say a word about it and nobody would know any different. What it's saying in Exodus, when you see your enemy's dog running down the street a few blocks from their house, knowing that it matters to them and is valuable to them, you scoop up the dog and you actually drive back to your enemy's house and you knock on the door and you say, I have something that is valuable to me, you, want, want, you might want it back. Or if you see that dog stuck somehow in a, in a bush or in a fence and you see your enemy there trying to get it out but it can't get out, you actually will stop what you're doing and you will go and you will, with your enemy by your side, help get the dog out, rescue it, and give it to the enemy. That's what it's saying. Now, how badly can they hate you after you brought little Scooter back to them? Do good to those who hate you. Do good to them. The Apostle Paul, who had a lot of enemies, he was beaten, he was imprisoned, he went hungry, he was shipwrecked. For the cause of Christ, he said these words in Romans chapter 12. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by doing you will, leave, you will heap burning coals on his head. Shame upon him. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with what? With good. Do good to those who hate you. A number of years ago, a few decades ago, I, I heard a, a man named Archibald Hart speak. He was a professor, a seminary professor, an author, a counselor, dealt a lot with anxiety-type issues. And he told a story when I heard him speak of his next-door neighbor. He did not like his next-door neighbor. It was a woman, and she was cantankerous, and she was critical, and she was demanding. And 30-some uh, years, next-door neighbors, under this kind of relationship. And she was quite a bit older, and one day he's sitting at his breakfast table with a coffee and, and his breakfast, and he looked out, and he sees her struggling to take trash cans from the from the garage, which is literally behind the house, this long driveway behind the house, taking them all the way down the driveway down to the front curb to have the pickup of the trash 
that next morning. And with a heart of compassion at that moment, he went and, and he said to the woman, I saw you struggling getting your trash cans out this morning, and I just want to say to you, um, as long as I'm your neighbor, I will make sure your trash is taken out. I will take them out and get the, the trash cans back every single week, and if I'm not around, I'll have somebody else do it. I promise you, you never have to worry about this again. Then he said to us that day, he said, and guess what happened with the relationship after that? He said she was just as cantankerous and difficult as ever. <laughs> Nothing changed a bit in her. But in him, when he started to do good to his enemy and serve her, things changed inside of him. Do good to those who hate you, who hate you. Counterintuitive. Action number two, speak kindly to those who curse you. Speak kindly to those who curse you. Verse 28, bless those who curse you. Now, this is not, cursing is not, in this context, somebody swearing at you on the freeway because you cut them off. That, that's, that's not the case. This is someone who, by their words, want to bring great damage to you. They want to hurt your reputation. They want to hurt your career. They want to hurt your family. They want to damage you. It's beyond gossip. It can be into slander. They're out to, out to do you in by their words about you. What do you do with a person who is vocal against you? Are you ready for this? Be vocal in wanting good for them. Bless them with your words. Seriously? Did I tell you this is counterintuitive? Romans 12, verse 14, Paul writes, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Now get this. Why should we not curse someone? You say, well, it's not very polite, and certainly that's true. But get this from James chapter 3, verses 8 through 10. No human being can tame the tongue. We say that's true. It is a restless, restless evil full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father. And with it, we curse, get this, people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. He says, we should never curse someone, not because it's impolite, although it is. We should not curse someone because they're made in the likeness of God. Even our enemies are made in the likeness of God, not just the good people. I have 12 expectations for our staff that uh, every year we go over them and they have a card that has them on them. And one of those expectations is this, speak well of others to others. Speak well of others to others. That's a lot better way than saying don't gossip, don't slander. Because if you speak well to others about others, you're never going to have to worry about somebody coming up to you sometimes saying, hey, I heard what you said to so-and-so about me, and i got a beef with you because of it. In fact, what they're going to say to you is, I heard what you said to so-and-so about me, and thank you for your kindness. Speak well to others of others to others. It removes gossip and slander. 
Do good to those who hate you. Speak kindly to those who curse you. Action number three. Pray for those who hurt you. Pray for those who hurt you. Or as it says in the English Standard Version that I'm using, verse 28, pray for those who abuse you. Abuse is a powerful word. Uh, the ESV is the only one that I could find that used that particular word to describe this. Others use the words like mistreat, ill-treat, hurt, spitefully use you. But no matter what the translation, it, it means being treated in a way that does you great harm. Pray for those who abuse you. Now remember, we previously had talked about how Paul used the government authorities for his protection when abused and wrong. Wrong, don't forget that when we talk about this. But notice that the instruction here is to pray for those who have abused and mistreated you. But it doesn't say that you need to hang out with them. But pray for them. So the question is, what do we pray? Because it doesn't say that. It doesn't tell us what to pray. It just says pray for those who abuse you. I mean, can we pray for their harm? Can we pray for their demise? Can we pray that God would strike them dead? <laughs> David did. King David did. You know, the man after God's own heart, King David did. In a few places, Psalm 109 is one of those. And he starts his prayer and he says, Be not silent. God of my praise, for wicked and deceitful mouths are opened against me, speaking against me with lying tongues. They encircle me with words of hate and attack me without cause. In return for my love, they accuse me. But I give myself, get this, to prayer. I give myself to prayer. So they reward me evil for good and hatred for my love. And then comes the prayer. Here Now he's telling God what he wants God to do. Ready? May his days be few. <laughs> May another take his office. May his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. Whoa. May his children wander about and beg, seeking food far from the ruins they inhabit. May the creditor seize all that he has. May strangers plunder the fruits of his toil. Let there be none that show kindness to him, nor any to pity his fatherless children. Whoa! Put that up on your mirror when you're mad at somebody. <laughs> Lord, it's me again. Time to pray. Now understand this. David wants vengeance. David has been deeply wrong. He's incredibly angry, but, but, but he places the person who has harmed him into God's hands through prayer. He's placed them into God's hands and not into his own hands. Because when we pray for a person who has hurt us, we place them in God's hands and we remove our hands from around their throat, if you will. Why? Why should we do it this way? Well, because God is just and he will do what is fair and right because maybe we might just have a skewed perspective. God is full of mercy and grace, thankfully. 
God has the complete picture and a clearer perspective than we do. And on top of that, which is hard for us to understand, God loves the person who did us harm. He loves them too. Additionally, personally, I found that when I pray about someone who has really done me harm, if I'm praying for bad for them or for good for them, God begins to soften my heart toward them. Every time, eventually. Every time. Do good to those who hate you. Speak kindly to those who curse you. Pray for those who hurt you. Action number four, don't retaliate. Don't retaliate. That's what it says in verses 29 and 30. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold uh, your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you and from one who takes away your goods. Do not demand them back. So how are we not to retaliate? Well, we're to turn the other cheek. This is about insults. It's not about a physical hit to the face. It's, it's someone has insulted you, and it's not insulting them back. It's not one-upping them in a crowd. They, they said bad about you, so you say bad about them back. It's not responding back on Twitter. It's letting it go. Let it go. It's being generous to those who have taken from you. Someone takes from you uh, something from stealing or borrowing. They, they took a coat. You have to give them your shirt as well. Maybe they need it more than, than you do. Let it go. Instead of suing them, instead of getting what you deserve, let it go. Be willing to be wronged. In the midst of that, be loving and generous. And it says, verse 35, that God will reward you for that. And it's to trust him to take care of you. They took this away from you, that away from you. Okay, let it go. Trust God to replenish what's been lost. <sighs> Have I mentioned this is counterintuitive? And I don't know where all the lines are. And here's how we pull this off according to Jesus. He's got two lines in there that really help us out. First is this, as you want, as you would want to be treated, so treat others. As you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. Verse 31, the golden rule. This is easy to pull off toward people that are easy, but remember, that's swapping. This is treating difficult people, even enemies, in the same way that you would like to be treated yourself. This takes pausing and asking yourself the question, if the shoe is on the other foot... How would I want that person to treat me? So it's as you would want others to want to be treated, so treat others. And then the second key here is act like God acts by extending mercy to those who have harmed you. Verses 35 and 36, for he is, God is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your father is merciful. Think about that. God is merciful. 
He is kind to the ungrateful. He is kind to the evil. A lot of people don't think that about God, but he's kind. The rain falls on both the evil and on the good. He's merciful, even to the ungrateful and the evil. We are to be like our father. We are to, as children, emulate our dad. We are to be like our heavenly father who acts this way. Even as your father is merciful, we are to be merciful as well. I'm not one to show a lot of uh, clips from movies or TV shows or anything when I preach. But um, Jane and I, we like the show The West Wing. That's years ago now. It's a political show. And it's about the president and the West Wing and, and his staff. There's a scene in one of those shows that really speaks to, to this, believe it or not. It's not a Christian show. But the principles in this scene are, you could take them right out of this passage. Let me set up the scene for you, and then we're going to watch it. The White House chief of staff, a guy named Leo McGarry in the show, it has been found out about him that prior to him being in the White House, he had been a drug addict, an alcoholic, and he had been in a rehabilitation center. And in his personnel file, that was sealed and a junior-level staff member in the White House somehow found that file and then ended up leaking it, which caused incredible harm to him and to the president and to their party, as you can imagine. And the scene that we're going to see is she has been found out. They have never met, but she's just been fired. She has her box of all her things from her desk, and she comes in because Leo McGarry, the chief of staff, wants to talk to her before she goes out of the White House. So let's take a look at this scene. Leo. Yeah. Karen Larson is here. Thanks. I'm Leo McGarry. Yes, sir. I wanted to meet you, and I wanted you to meet me. Yes, sir. Would you like to put down your things and talk for a minute? If you don't, I understand. When you read in my personnel file that I'd been treated for alcohol and drug abuse, what went through your mind? Karen, it's okay. You can say it. The worst thing I'm empowered to do is fire you, and I've already done that. My father drank a lot. So did mine. In fact, he died from it. He came home late one night, very drunk. My mother was yelling at him. I'm not sure about what, but I heard the yelling downstairs from my bedroom. She came upstairs, and he went out to the garage and shot himself in the head. Is that why you drank and took drugs? I drank and took drugs because I'm a drug addict and an alcoholic. How long did it take you to get cured? I'm not cured. You don't get cured. I haven't had a drink or a pill in six and a half years. Which isn't to say I won't have one tomorrow. 
What would happen if you did? I don't know. But probably a nightmare the likes of which both our fathers experienced, and me too. And... So after six and a half years, you're still not allowed to have a drink? The problem is, I don't want a drink. I want ten drinks. Are things that bad? No. Then why? Because I'm an alcoholic. I don't understand. I know. It's okay. Hardly anyone does. It's very hard to understand. You're not like what I thought you would be like. You haven't answered my question yet. When you saw my personnel file, when you saw I'd been through treatment, what went through your mind? My father used to... You have all these important decisions to make in your job. Every day. All the time. Decisions I can't even... people's lives. Karen, what you did caused a lot of problems for me, for the president, for a lot of people we don't even know. But I'm not sure it wasn't a little bit brave. Did you like working at the White House? Yes, sir. Then why don't you go unpack your carton and you and I will give each other a second chance. Okay. good to those who hate you. Speak kindly to those who curse you. Pray for those who hurt you. Don't retaliate. As you would want to be treated, so treat others. Act like God acts by extending mercy to those who have harmed you. Would you bow with me, please, for prayer? Lord, I can only imagine with the amount of people that we have right here of how many people have, in one form or another, an enemy or 
several enemies in their life right now. People that they just quite honestly can't stand. People they'd rather not be around. They could be in the form of a family member or somebody at their work, somebody at school, somebody at church. You could be a leader at church. Lord, you know all about it. And then you give us these instructions that are so against everything that goes in our nature. To love and to be kind and to show good deeds and to say nice things and to not retaliate, but to tangibly show love to those that we would consider enemies in our life. Lord, we cannot do this without your help. May we love our enemies as you have called us to do. May the power of your Holy Spirit work through us so that we can extend love to those who hurt us and harm us. And Lord, we will turn over the retribution to you because you are fair and just and merciful. And because you love that person too. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.